If you have children or if you spent much time around children, you don't have to be told that kids are perhaps one of the clearest pictures we have of what it means to be human. They are transparent and real and we adults, we become experts at covering things up, covering up our true feelings, build, building sophisticated facades around kind of who we are and what we think and what we believe, but not children. Children have not learned the fine art of crafting their image yet. They are simply who they are. Author Ed Welch writes, children are profoundly needy, but stubbornly independent. No, enters the vocabulary right after Dada and Mama. And when soon they learn the word mine, which comes right after no, and then when that doesn't work, they throw temper tantrums. And they do this without ever having witnessed adults banging fists on the floor and screaming. And even, Ed Welch writes, even if they live in an unsaleable fortress protected round the clock by loyalists who ward off all robbers and ghosts and monsters with loved ones, always calling at a distance, always within calling distance, with video cameras on and monitors and alarms perpetually set and night lights on before dusk, shielded from all creeping things, they will guaranteed be afraid. Children do not have to be taught how to fear. They know fear instinctively because fear is natural to being human in this world in which we live. Now, maybe you are one of the few this morning who think, you know what, I'm not really afraid of much of anything. I don't have any sort of fear. I'm not afraid of things that go bump in the night or of something that might be living in my closet or under the bed. I don't sleep with a nightlight. I'm not afraid of heights. In fact, if I were called up front to public speak, right, one of humanity's greatest fears, I would not even bat an eye. I would not be afraid at all. Maybe that is you, but I am confident that if we spent enough time together, if we got to know each other long enough and drilled down deep enough, we would find something that you fear, that all of us fear. Maybe it's the potential of losing a job, or that one of your kids would become terminally ill, or of not meeting your own expectations at work or at home. Maybe your fear is letting down those around you. Now, you may think to yourself this morning, Eric, wait a minute, our text is on hypocrisy. So why in the world are we talking about fear? Here's why. Hypocrisy is presenting an external picture that does not match an internal reality. It's putting up a facade designed to misrepresent who we truly are, usually by trying to pretend that we are better than ourselves. Hypocrisy is inconsistency. 
It's like when you cut into an apple that looks really good on the outside, you cut into it and you find that there's worms on the inside. Or you open that brand new can of salsa, the one you've been so excited to dig into, and you find that it's spoiled even though it's not past its expiration date. But friends, hypocrisy does not grow on its own. Just like every fire needs fuel, hypocrisy needs fuel as well. And the fuel of hypocrisy is fear. We go to a new school. We fear that people will not like us for who we are. So we find thousands of ways to deceive, to lie, to make ourselves appear better than we are, at least in our own imagination. The external picture that we present does not match the internal reality. Oh, how sophisticated we can become as adults in the art of hypocrisy. Padding our stories, tweaking our social media feeds with just the right things, carefully curating our image, our brand to cultivate exactly what we want others to see of us. The Pharisees were world class at this kind of hypocrisy. In fact, Pastor Nick pointed this out last week as we looked at chapter 11, but I want to show you again, so I just want you to scan your eyes back up to Luke chapter 11. Let's look at verse 39, for example. And Jesus said, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You see the, the difference there, out. Side, external reality, different than internal reality. Verse 40, you fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Verse 42, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You see, again, difference between external and internal. Verse 43, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and the greeting in the marketplaces, carefully curating their image, how they would be viewed, what they would be thought of by others. Jesus is rebuking them for their hypocrisy. They gave considerable energy each day to how they appeared, how they were seen by others, to their image. And all the while, they gave precious little time to what was actually going on inside their heart, to actually loving God, to actually fearing the Lord, actually serving the Lord by serving their neighbor. So now here in Luke chapter 12, Jesus, surrounded by the crowd, But he addresses his disciples. He confronts his disciples. He's preparing them for the mission that he has for them. Not only in the the immediate context, but he's also preparing them knowing that there will come a day when he will leave. When on their shoulders will rest the responsibility of carrying the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is preparing his followers for that day. And he knows of the inevitable temptation that will face them, the temptation to make themselves look better than they are, to care more about appearances than about the heart. And so Jesus is warning his followers, verse one, in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, 
beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Once again, the crowds are surrounding Jesus, and once again, just as he did in chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus chooses this moment to kind of unveil some of his harder teaching. Beware. This is a warning. Watch out. Be on guard for the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware. Be on guard for the teaching of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So question, does that mean that 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 which the Pharisees teach is hypocritical? Like their teaching itself promotes hypocrisy or does Jesus mean that the Pharisees themselves are hypocrites? And I think the answer that we see throughout the Gospels is both. The Pharisees were hypocrites themselves. We saw that in chapter 11 last week. They were major league hypocrites. And Jesus is warning his followers. It's one of the reasons, in fact, even for our use today, that the scripture is full of instruction about how the church should know and watch and pay careful attention to the character of those who preach and teach scripture. Which is why, just as a sideline, your primary source of spiritual food and feeding and teaching cannot be from someone on a screen. Whether that's someone at another campus on a screen or whether that is someone hundreds or thousands of miles away on a screen. Because you can't know their life. You can't watch them interact with their spouse. You can't observe over time their character and attitude with their children, whether that's a small group leader or a Bible study leader or a Sunday school teacher or a preacher from this pulpit. Pharisees were hypocrites in their own lives, but also their teaching was hypocritical. Again, we saw that last week. The very things that the Pharisees were teaching were saturated in hypocrisy. They were primarily concerned with making outwardly moral Jewish men and women. In other words, they cared more about the outside of the cup or the bowl than they did the inside of the cup or the bowl. And so Jesus now warns his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. I think it's important to note that Jesus refers here to the leaven of the Pharisees. Your translation may say the yeast of the Pharisees. What does leaven do? What does yeast do? Well, it infiltrates, it expands, it pervades. It's <laughs> to my dismay like the dandelions in my front yard right now. It's like one day there's one and then I woke up this morning and there's like 50,000 offsprings of that one little cruel dandelion trying to take over my yard. And in the Bible, leaven is a symbol of corruption. It's a symbol of the infectious power of evil. We see that in Exodus and Leviticus and Hosea and 1 Corinthians and Galatians. In fact, in the Old Testament, this is why Israel was commanded to remove the leaven from their houses during Passover. So Jesus is accusing the Pharisees of having a hidden, corrupting influence on the people. 
They're promoting this kind of hypocrisy, this kind of duplicity. As one author writes, hypocrisy tends to recruit others into its charade. Hypocrisy puts the bar at an impossible height and then encourages everyone to pretend that they are jumping over it. Tragically, hypocrisy makes us look at other Christians and think, well, maybe I'm the only one who's struggling with this. Maybe I'm the only one whose life seems like a mess right now, who can't get this figured out. Hypocrisy is more than simply pretending to be someone we are not. Because hypocrisy is also the inconsistency of life that wants the benefits of godliness without the sacrifice of complete surrender to Christ. Let me say that again. That's really important for us to to understand. Hypocrisy is not simply pretending to be someone that we are not. It is that. But hypocrisy is also the inconsistency of life. The partiality, the partialness, the half-heartedness, the halfway following that wants the benefits of godliness without the sacrifice of complete surrender to Jesus Christ. In Bunyan's, John Bunyan's excellent book, Pilgrim's Progress, in fact, I would just encourage you, if you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, you've heard this before, please read Pilgrim's Progress. You'll be blessed. There's a variety of different versions that are out there. There's some excellent kids' versions with some fantastic illustrations. We try to go through that about once a year with our kids. We're working through that again now. But in Pilgrim's Progress, there are two characters, two close friends named Formalist and Hypocrisy. You can get an idea of who they are by the way Bunyan names them. Bunyan writes about Christian who is on a journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city, to to heaven, to an eternity with the king. And he is told to follow the narrow path. And he's already come through the gate, past the cross, and is now on the path. And on his journey, Bunyan writes, Christian saw two men come tumbling over the wall on the left side and onto the path. They immediately came towards Christian. The name of one was formalist. The name of the other was hypocrisy. Soon they were walking with Christian on the path. And Christian began immediately to engage them in conversation. Christian asked, Gentlemen, where did you come from? Where are you going? Formalist and hypocrisy replied, We were born in the land of vainglory. And we are going to Mount Zion where we expect that we will receive both praise and honor. Christian responds, why didn't you enter by the gate that stands at the beginning of the way and come by the cross? Don't you know that it is written that he who does not come in by the door through the cross but climbs up some other way is a thief and a robber? Formalist and hypocrisy answered that to go in To the gate, in order to enter into the narrow way past the cross, was considered by them and all their countrymen to be too inconvenient, especially since they could shorten the journey by simply climbing over the wall and carrying on the journey 
as all others do. But won't this be seen as trespassing? Christian asked. Don't you think the Lord of the city for which we are bound must count it as a violation of his revealed will? Formalist in hypocrisy told Christian not to worry about it, since it had been the custom of their land for more than a thousand years. But, asked Christian, will your custom stand up in a court of law? They replied, this custom of entering the way by taking the shortcut has been going on as a long-standing practice for more than a thousand years and would be ruled as a legal practice by any impartial judge. And besides, they added, as long as we get into the way, what does it matter how we get in? If we are in, we are in. You came into the way through the narrow gate past the cross. We came tumbling over the wall. And since we are both in, who is to say that your chosen path is better than ours? Tragically, not long after this, both formalist and hypocrisy end up abandoning the way when the road gets steep and treacherous. And they do not make it to the celestial city because it was all just an act. It was all just an outward show of religion. There was no heart transformation. They had an unwillingness to surrender completely to Christ. They wanted the benefits of godliness without the sacrifice of complete surrender to Christ, to do it God's way. So as we can see, hypocrisy is dangerous because it spreads so subtly. Hypocrisy is also dangerous because it will eventually be exposed. Look at verse 2 and 3. Jesus says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. You may be familiar with the Latin phrase, quorum Deo, which means before the face of God. Everything we do, everything we say, everything we think is all before the face of God. God sees it all. God knows it all. God hears it all. And this, in fact, is an incredibly great comfort to those of us who are children of God. We may be misunderstood by our friends. We may be ridiculed by our coworkers. We may be mistreated by our family. But God cares and God sees and God knows. In fact, I know just a couple of examples within our own church family of individuals, even in the last couple of weeks, who have faced some level of suffering for taking a stand according to biblical truth, biblical ethics. And this truth of quorum Deo before the face of God, that God sees all and hears all and knows all, is incredibly comforting in our suffering. But there's another reality to quorum Deo. It means that God also sees through hypocrisy. He sees through disingenuous acts of faith. He sees through half-hearted devotion. And one day, Jesus says, it all will be revealed. It will all be made known. Every careless word, every deed, every action will be exposed. Everything. 
Now, just to be clear, for Christians, our eternal salvation, our standing before God for all of eternity will not depend on what is revealed in that final judgment. Our final standing before God and our standing even now before God is based on the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sin. His resurrection for our justification that we by faith are made God's own. And yet, even for the Christian, the Bible presents this judgment as a motivation for godliness. Jesus is warning his very followers, don't be a hypocrite. Be consistent because God sees, because God knows. It's like Joseph when running from the temptation of Potiphar's wife. We know that God is the God who sees and God is the God who knows and God is the God who will judge. We believe in the free grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we celebrate the fact that for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation, that the penalty of our sins have been paid in full, that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness, that we have an inheritance kept for us that is undefiled and unfading and imperishable, and that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God for that day, that glorious day when we see Jesus face to face. And we cherish those wonders of the salvation of God through Jesus Christ. But even friends, brothers and sisters in the faith, fellow Christians, even as we cherish those wonders of God's saving grace, let us not ignore the warnings of that same God, warnings which are meant to keep us walking in faithful joy. Warnings which are like guardrails on the straight and narrow road that remind us, don't go there, it's dangerous. Don't go there, it's a lesser joy. Like parents who warn, don't play in the road. The warnings are given in love and are meant to keep us safe. And so, since hypocrisy is dangerous, since it's invasive, since it will be exposed, what's the remedy? What's the antidote? Jesus gives us the antidote. The antidote for hypocrisy is fearing the Lord. The antidote for hypocrisy is fearing the Lord. In verses four and five, Jesus contrasts for us the two kinds of fear that can fuel us, the fear of man or the fear of God. Look at verse four. I tell you, my friends, Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Hypocrisy, remember, is fueled by fear. It's fueled by the fear of man. It's fueled by an exclusive concern for the here and now, for that which we can see with our own eyes. 
Hypocrisy feeds on our need to be accepted and liked and valued and even defined by the people around us. Even if we don't know them, we want to impress. We want to present a certain image. We want to fit in. And so we do whatever is needed to assure that what people see of us is what we want them to see of us. And friends, that is fear of man. We care more about the opinions of others than the opinion of God. And this is not just a problem for first century Pharisees. This is a problem of epidemic proportions today. Giving way too much weight to other people, what other people think about us or will say about us or how they comment on us. Whether they like what we say or don't like what we say or block us. And not giving near enough weight to what God says about us and of us. In the 1800s, J.C. Ryle wrote, and this is just a few years before social media even. He wrote, the fear of man, which makes it all the more amazing that he would write this, right? In the 1800s, it tells us that this is a problem from the first century through today. And even before the first century, it's a problem from the beginning of time. The fear of man, Rao writes, is one of the greatest obstacles which stand between the soul and heaven. What will men say of me? What will they think of me? What will they do to me? How often these little questions have turned the balance against the soul and kept men bound hand and foot by sin and the devil. Thousands would never hesitate a moment to storm a breach or to face a lion who dare not face the laughter of relatives and friends and neighbors. So what's the fix for this kind of fear of man and for the hypocrisy that flows from this kind of fear of man? The answer, once again, is to fear the Lord. Notice again verses 4 and 5. I tell you, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Notice, Jesus does not whitewash over in verse 4 the dangers that exist for the followers of Jesus Christ. Dangers that some of us know more than others certainly many of our brothers and sisters in the faith around the world know much better than the vast majority of us. There is real danger in this world, yes. Do Christians sometimes suffer at the hands of other humans? Yes. Will following Christ sometimes mean dying for Christ? Yes. In fact, many Christians around the world right now know that truth not so much as a possibility but as a probability. And we're concerned about what people think about us. Now, this is a really good place to stop and pause for just a moment and add that if you are here and you are not a Christian this morning, we are delighted that you are here. Maybe you're here for a variety of reasons. 
And maybe as we have been singing God's word and praying God's word and reading God's word and now as God's word is proclaimed, God is opening up the eyes of your heart, your mind to all of a sudden begin to think, you know what, I, I don't know that I'm a Christian. I, I don't know that I'm right before God. You know what, I, I think I'm a rebel against God. I think I've been running from God. I think I have been rejecting God, suppressing the truth about God in unrighteousness. And the fear of God this morning has a different weight if you are not in Christ Jesus, if you are not a Christian. Because according to Jesus, hell is real. And the only hope that we have to avoid the wages of our sin, which is death, is to trust in God's Son who took our place and bore our sin in his body on the cross. So this morning, if you are not trusting in Jesus, would you turn to him this morning and believe? Would you respond to his gracious work calling you to salvation? Would you confess that you are a sinner in need of salvation, that you cannot save yourself? And would you trust in Jesus Christ, God's holy son who died and who was raised for our salvation? And if you want someone to talk to after service or talk with after service or talk about, I guess, after service, you are welcome to come forward. There are some in the front who would love to talk to you. This is the same Jesus who here in Luke 12 is reminding his followers, is reminding us Christians to lift our eyes to the horizon of eternity, to look past what and whom we can see with our eyes and to see the God of creation, to see the one who has the power and the authority to give life and to take it, who holds eternity, who holds heaven and hell in his hands, to look past the here and now and to recognize that which is eternal and to fear him who holds that eternity in his hand. Fearing God means caring more about what God says than what others say or think or may comment or may post. In fact, I think this is one of the motivations for Jesus telling us in Matthew chapter 6 that we are to pray in private, in secret, rather than to be seen by others. This doesn't mean we can't pray in public. It doesn't mean that Jeff's prayer earlier, my prayer, Joe's prayer earlier was sinful. It just means that we are not to pray to be seen by others. It means that the truest measure of what we are is what we are when we are alone with God. So, Let's step back for a minute and recap. Jesus warns his followers against hypocrisy, verse 1. Hypocrisy is dangerous. It spreads and it will eventually be exposed, verses 2 and 3. Hypocrisy is fueled by fear of man, verse 4. And so the antidote is fearing God. We should fear God because he is God and because he holds our lives and our eternity in his hands, verse 5. But now, curiously, Jesus turns to explain what it is like to live in the fear 
of God. This is important, not only because Jesus said it, but because it's the opposite of what we would expect had not Jesus said this. If Jesus didn't define and the Bible didn't explain what it is like to live in the fear of God, we would likely get the wrong idea. Like if all we had was a Bible full of imperatives, and that was it. So you open to this page. In my Bible, it's page 1049. And on that page, there were two words. It just said, fear God. Maybe exclamation point. We would likely think that fearing God was akin to like Bell living in the castle with the beast. Or like the terror that a child has who lives in fear of an unpredictable father. But thankfully, we have a Bible which shows us in dozens of ways what it is like to live Coram Deo, to live before the face of God, in the fear of God. And this is precisely what Jesus explains. It's as though Jesus is is thinking almost. We don't know what Jesus is thinking. But it's almost as though we get this impression that Jesus is, is warning his followers. There will be a temptation to try to impress others. There will be temptations to want the benefits of following me without actually fully following me. There will be temptations to want to fool people, to make yourself seem better than you truly are. Don't do that. That's dangerous. It spreads. It won't work anyway because everything will be exposed. It's fueled by a fear of man. And instead, you should live fearing God. And now, let me show you what it is like to live in the fear of God. Verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. There is a gentle rest in fearing God. Joy comes when we fear the God of the Bible and then discover that the God of the Bible cares for us in this way. Is kind to us and gracious to us and loving towards us and is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for his own in this way. You see, our fear of God brings joy when we see how Jesus describes the Father. Like, you know those sparrows? Like, you can take one hour's worth of wage, you go down and you can buy five sparrows. Like, that's how insignificant they are. And yet, your Father in heaven knows every single one. Like, not one of them is forgotten. And he doesn't just look and think, oh, there's a bunch of sparrows, but he knows each an individual sparrow. And take the hair on your head. God knows the exact number. Even your best friend doesn't know that. Your spouse doesn't know that. Your mama doesn't know that. But our good father, he knows that. 
listen up. You are worth more than lots and lots of sparrows. That's what it is like to live inside the fear of God. That's what it is like to live inside the shelter of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seeking first the opinion of God. Seeking first what God has said, how God defines us, what God communicates as truth and grace and love. And what we discover is that there is a gentle rest in fearing God. I mean, I love just the words Jesus uses here in verses 6 and 7. He points out that not one of these sparrows is forgotten. And isn't that what drives so often our fear of man? We, we don't want to be forgotten. We want to be known. We, we want to be a part Jesus says, fear God and you are not forgotten. Or in verse 7, you are of more value than many sparrows. Isn't that what drives so often our fear of man? We want to be valued. We want to be validated. We want to be seen as worthwhile. We want our life to make a difference, to count for something. And so we live for the applause of others and live by and die by the opinions of others and live to seek to please others ahead of God. And Jesus is saying, fear God first and you will find that you are valued for who you are in God. You see, only our good Father completely fulfills our longing for love and acceptance and value. So brothers and sisters, fear not. Fear not what others say. Fear not what others think. Rather, fear God. Respect God. Look to God. Trust in God. Hope in God. And rest. Would you stand with me? Let's pray.